This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, radiotherapists. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I'm Dr Doolittle and we have a lot to discuss this morning, but let's just begin by thanking Marinara. What a great crew. Crew, let me try and pronounce my words. And what a great show. Um... For radiotherapy this morning, we've got a few surprises for you. In the studio, we are joined by a special guest. Dr David Bradford is a gay sexual health and HIV AIDS physician who worked in Melbourne and Cairns. He graduated as a doctor in 1965 and after 10 difficult years, including Vietnam, he discovered his specialty. During the AIDS epidemic, his patients became his life. And David has recently published a memoir, Tell Me I'm OK. It's a great book for many reasons and he's in the studio to talk all about it. And also in the studio are two of our regulars, Dr Trainer Wheels, a medical student on the fast track to being a doctor, and Panel Beta, our trusty international health researcher and the philosophical compass of radiotherapy. (laughs) Is there such thing as a philosophical compass? (laughs) I don't know. There is today. There is today. I Um, I find out more about myself every time I come on here. (laughs) That's why you put a psychiatrist in charge of the microphone. Trainer Wheels is going to tell us why some people eat and don't get fat and whether it's okay to hate them. And the panel beater has something tantalising to say about good old sodium bicarbonate and cancer. He thinks sodium bicarb is the gaffer tape of medicine. Hmm. But before we do anything, let's begin with the news. Doctor, doctor, don't we love it? It sort of wakes us up. Although well, I badly need waking up. How are you guys? How are you, panel beta? Good morning. I'm very well. Geez, it's a it's a winter morning if there ever was one, huh? You look um. You, I, for the sake of the radio people out there who don't have the benefit of the visual aids that I have, he sort of looks like Elmer Fudd. In, yeah, you do. He's got one of those little sort of woolen hats on with a little cap. He's got this big woolly sort of t- jumper on. The beard's he's, perhaps the, thicker than normal. Yeah. Thicker than normal. He looks like he's. A bear. You look like a bear. Well, uh, you know, I'm warm. I'm warm, and that's the objective. That's the main thing. <laughs> yeah. And you know your headphones today match your top, which just oh makes... I'm going to take a photo and put it on Facebook <laughs> later. What about you, um, Dr Trainer Wheels? I'm good. Are you in exam mode, holiday mode, study mode, or living life mode at the living moment? Living life. Yeah, <gasps> I fullest? had my last exam last week, and I'm very pleased about it. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Yeah, really good. Well, enjoy the break. You obviously deserve it. And over in the corner, our special guest, Dr. David Bradford. G'day. G'day. Thank you for coming in this morning. It's a pleasure. Do you uh, do you live around these parts? Did you have to travel a long way? Only from South Bank. That's not too bad. Oh, not you, bad at all. Oh, you should have given me a le- you, you won't believe what happened to me this morning. Because I come from South Bank too. And I was I woke up, I kid you not, discombobulated. I, I Seriously, I don't That's know why. like you, do I, little. I know, because I actually <laughs> behaved last night. I watched the soccer. I had no more than two or three beers. And I got an early night. And I woke up discombobulated. And I got, and it was very foggy. That might have been the cause. <laughs> and I got in my car to come to Triple R. And I started driving to Peter Mac, where I work, by mistake, without thinking. And I'm driving up to Peter Mac. And then I think to myself, why am I 
driving to Peter Mac on a Sunday. <laughs> Damn, I'm meant to be going to Triple R. So I come a different way to Triple R, and then I'm driving along up um, one of those streets that's recently, unfortunately, turned into a 40 zone. And I normally drive up Nicholson Street, which is a 60 zone. I go through a set of traffic lights, flash, 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 uh, and then I'm rapidly trying to think how many points am I on? Am I going to lose my license? So I'm up for a bit of money. I was in a very bad mood, but then I had this like moment that just cheered me up completely. I park a Triple R and there's a blue Subaru with a Triple R sticker on it and the number plate STD and we've got a sexually transmitted diseases doctor. And it was like... It was like a good ending to my sad drive. That's nice. That's nice. Doolittle, you've turned a, I don't know, every cloud. Are you still discombobulated? (laughs) Well, now I'm just depressed about the fact that I've probably lost three points and hundreds of dollars. Oh, dear. But let's get on to good news. What is your news, Dr Panel Beater? Well, I'm no oncologist. Did you know that? You're an international health expert. And philosophical compass. compass. How could you be an oncologist as well? But I do find... (laughs) (laughs) But I'm well aware of of, uh, cancer is that that story, that that medical story that, uh, you know, is the the holy grail, right? Yeah. So you're constantly coming across stories telling us about what's solving cancer. And it's touched on so many people's lives. There's that. Then I'm also a big fan of gaffer tape and WD-40 and bicarb soda. They're the holy trinity oh, yeah, of solutions are. to just about everything, right? See, I'm, I don't know this bicarb soda, but I always have gaffer tape and WD-40. If it, It's not broken until one of those three things can't fix it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I came across this article and, and it was headlined something like baking soda and cancer and health, right? So that caught my eye. Mm. Um it, it, it turns out, I learned a little bit about cancer. Apparently one of the big issues with um, immunotherapy drugs um, is that they're trying, they try and address uh, how oxygen relates to tumours. Mm. And um, doctors uh, came across uh, this notion that if they could... The, the immunotherapy drugs were dealing with one aspect of the tumours, and but as a consequence, it was a wicked problem, mm. um, that would cause uh, oxygen deficiency in the tumours, da-da-da-da. Anyway, turns out they started giving um, uh, bicarb soda to mice with tumours and the mice were responding very well. And apparently bicarb soda, in its magic... <laughs> with immunotherapy or...? Yeah. Right. Um, with its magic, was starting to reduce the size and mass of the tumours. Amazing. It was just bicarb soda and water. Now, Can I just double-check, was this published in New Idea or a scientific journal? <laughs> yeah, I'm very sceptical so far. Uh, no, no, I'll, I'll put the link up on the on the Facebook page. No, it, it came from a... Oh, I'm just looking... But it was reputable. It was, it we was, trust you and you'll oh, put the link yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. We can double-check your I, uh, I was looking for peer review and all that business. Yeah, it was all, all fine. I'll put the link up. Um, but anyway, so uh, this seems like an incredibly simple way um, to address... Uh, dealing with the, the mass of tumours. So it's not solving cancer, it's just treating the tumour. Um, but And it's in conjunction with immunotherapy. Yeah. Yeah, see, because so this is it's quite an interesting one for you, um, I think, David, too, because, uh, you know, immu- so immunotherapy, just for, you know, the public out there, um, cancer has 
previously had essentially three big treatments. Surgery, the commonest treatment, and still the most effective for cancer. Radiotherapy, the second commonest. Well, in terms of commonest, <laughs> You've been listening to matter. the show. Um, yeah, I have, yeah. and we've seen, I've interviewed so many oncologists. Mm. Uh, radiotherapy is probably the second most successful, and chemotherapy is up there as well, and that's mm. been the mainstay of our treatment for cancer for decades. And in the last decade, of course, all these immunotherapy, the immunotherapy movement has exploded after about 20 or 30 years of research trying to understand the immune system and its impact on cancer. It's in the last five to 10 years resulted in two major treatments at the moment, but more on the horizon. And interestingly, illnesses like melanoma uh, having a similar turnaround that HIV had in 98 when the triple therapy came out and people's, and finally there was um, some, uh, what's the word, you know, some promise, some light on the horizon, whatever it is. And uh, melanoma is going through a similar process. But the big problem with immunotherapy is its early days of treatment, just like in 98 with the triple therapy for HIV, there were so many side effects and it was such a burdensome treatment. Immunotherapy is a bit like that now. So people are scratching around and studying furiously to figure out how to make immunotherapy more tolerable. And to and so it's interesting that bicarb fits in in the context of maybe this is one of the things that might... Yeah. Um, enhance it, make it better, make whatever, whatever. I mean, people are scratching around for so many ways to um, think about how we use immunotherapies and how the new ones will fit into the uh, armamentarium of treatment. What the, what the article didn't tell me what is, what is the property of bicarb soda that is doing this? You know, so if it's just literally a, um, a bicarb soda and water mixture um, in conjunction with all the other the immunotherapy yeah. treatments, what's the magic... Uh, I know that some alternative medicine kind of practitioner type people advocate using bicarb even on its own in the absence of immunotherapy. And I think the idea from their point of view is that it alkalinizes. am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Makes Mm. the blood more Mm. alkaline because the idea is that cancer thrives in an acidic environment, which I've never quite worked out why eating something would change the pH of your blood because it's a very delicate balance but anyway that's the that's an idea i've heard i wonder if it's related to that potentially yeah yeah so the article did mention the acidity Mm. and therefore that probably is the response Mm. but um just to to wrap it up you know so then that got me you know going down the rabbit hole of the internet looking at all the other health benefits of bicarb so (laughs) yeah so i found um that it not only is it good for baking bread, we all know that, um, but from a health point of view, it can be used to remove plaque and odours from your teeth, promotes whitening. Mm. You can use you it... You see toothpaste with it advertised yeah, sometimes. With right. bicarb yep. soda. Um, it can be used for um, minor injuries like insect bites, bee stings, poison ivy, splinters and sunburn. Yeah. Sunburn. Sunburn, bicarb soda, I tell you. Magic. Um, uh, it can be used as a natural deodorant, a foot soak, a, a detox bath and an exfoliator. It's a detox bath. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a bit vague to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Detoxing your feet, I think. Um, okay. And, sure. and sure. finally, I found that it is apparently, once again, baking soda and water is effective for relieving heartburn, indigestion and ulcer pain. So there's a lot of claims for the health benefits. We of are learning soda. a lot today. Oh. And, of course, now that um, bicarb's been, you know, as got an early but looking like established role in cancer, all we have to do now is apply to NHMRC for a grant to study the WD-40 WD- and gaffer tape. <laughs> we, we, we could cure most diseases on radiotherapy. Three. Triple. Hey, uh, you're listening to Radiotherapy. I'm Dr Doolittle. We've got um, 
the panel beater. We have Dr. Tranewills, but our special guest is David Bradford, who, as I mentioned in the intro, um, was a gay sexual health and HIV AIDS physician in Melbourne and Cairns. And he graduated as a doctor in 1965. And after 10 years, including Vietnam, he fell into, or not fell into, that's an inappropriate, he'll tell us how he got into it, his specialty. And during the AIDS epidemic, his patients became his life. And in retirement, he and his husband live in Melbourne. He's the author of a book, Tell Me I'm Okay, which relates a remarkable set of stories about growing up as a gay child in a strongly Christian family, struggling with his sexuality, serving as an army doctor in Vietnam during the Vietnam War, working as director of the Melbourne Communicable, I can never say that, diseases centre at the time of the arrival of HIV AIDS and in private practice with hundreds of AIDS patients, many of whom did not survive. True. Thank you again, David, for coming in. Yeah, it's great. Hey, why don't we... Um, start the ball rolling with telling us that we'll get on to the HIV AIDS because that's yep. like an amazing part of the history of your practice and our society. But let's start with your own life. How, you know, how did being gay affect your, li- your life and career as a doctor, I've, I wonder? Um, uh, well, I think at first I wasn't out. Right. I knew from about the time I was 13 that yep. I was attracted to guys. Yep. Um, but because of the background that I had, it wasn't something that was appropriate for me to even really think hard about or mm. even to talk about or even to c- consider as a possibility that I could act on it. Mm. So I kind of suppressed it. Yep. When I got to medical school and I had some psychiatry lectures, um, I thought the best way of dealing with this terrible urges that I have is to somehow sublimate them. Yep. And um, because it really wasn't open to me as a then committed Christian to act on, you know, my true feelings. Yep. And so I really didn't talk about it to anybody at all. Certainly not to my parents because they would probably have had a stroke. Um, (laughs) Certainly not to any of my, um, you know, uh, tutors, medical school tutors. Um, I just suppressed it. You know, because it was such an... In- you know, because I, I worked in HIV AIDS back then, as I mentioned, and um, the cultural... There was no cultural compass for being gay back then. No. And so many people came... You know, there were in some places, if you lived in central Sydney, you know, if I had patients from central Sydney in certain parts of Melbourne, they were part of the culture of um, yep. gay culture and there was supports and they were part of a community. But for so many people who came along early on in the HIV era um, who were gay, there was just no cultural compass whatsoever. And a lot of them had never met anyone who was gay. They probably had, but they didn't know. Yes. It, it just seemed like such a hurdle to sort of try and understand, um, you know, what it meant. And so everyone had their own interpretations in their head and coming from a very religious background, that must have been even harder. It was, it was. And, uh, and, 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 and there was also the feeling that it was wrong and therefore yep. that was even worse for me. Um, so I went to graduated eventually, um, went to did two years in a teaching hospital in Sydney, and then I, my supreme way of sublimating, I thought, was I wanted to look after young guys. Yeah, I thought it'd be nice to be the doctor for a group of young guys, and so I joined the army. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't, you know, reading your book and your family, it, you know, the army sounds like the last place that anyone would have guessed you would have ended up, apart from, as you say, in retrospect, you know, wondering whether it was sublimating um, sexual urges. But um, yeah, how did you adapt to army life? 
Well, surprisingly, I took to it like a duck to water. I mean, it wasn't so much... um, Well, I was a doctor, you know, and doctors get a privileged run in the army. You become a captain as soon as you come in. Mm. Um, So you're an officer, you're treated like an officer, you you eat in the officer's mess. Um, It's quite a pleasant life, really. And um, I, I... I really found that it was it suited me at that time of my life, and and I was whisked away to Vietnam within three months of joining the army. Um, you, what was the public perception of Vietnam at the time? At that time, which was um, the beginning of nineteen sixty-seven, yeah, and I arrived in Vietnam in May sixty-seven. Um, I think the general feeling in the Australian community was that it was a war that was worth fighting. I yep. think the majority of people went along with the government line. It was only after the, those first, those next few years that, that the real opposition to and the, the protest movement against Viet, the Vietnam War really happened. Yeah, that sort of built, didn't it, like 70, 71, 72? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think, I, I think it, you know, we all knew all the officers that I was with um, between towards the end, the middle of 68, and this was after the Tet Offensive, which you might remember was the time when public perception, I think, in the States and in Australia really swung around then um, because we really all thought that this war was unwinnable. And, in fact, it was really a civil war and that we were not really... Um, doing anything terribly effective. Mm. How long did you spend there, David? Uh, one, year, one year and one week. Okay. <laughs> Not that I was counting. <laughs> <laughs> was the was the medical community as divided as the general community at that point when when that sentiment started to shift? Um, yes, I think it was. You know, the medical profession is a conservative profession. Um, and I think it was probably even more conservative back then than it is now. But, um, but you know, one couldn't, if you have, were a thinking person, you couldn't really think that this, you know, waging this war and doing such harm to a little country like Vietnam could be a good thing. And I think doctors gradually came to think that too. Mm. Um, so... Oh, look, I, I, don't, I know we want to get on to HIV, so I want to come back to... So, so when you left um, the army after how many years? Well, I, w- I was only in the... I, the good thing I did was I said that I wanted to come into the army to serve in Vietnam, yep. and they said, OK, you can come in a, a, under a thing called the CMF, the Citizens Military Forces, and we'll just make you a full-time doctor, and when you've done... Providing you do your full stint in Vietnam, they said, then you can stay with the army as long as you like afterwards or leave as quickly as you like. So, in fact, it suited me to stay for another six months. Oh, is that all? Because when you signed up, I thought it was about a six-year stint well, from your you, book. Well, yeah. if you went into the regular army, then yeah, right. you had to agree to six years. But, right, but, but you... because of the exigencies of the Vietnam War, and they really wanted young doctors because, of, you know, most of the army doctors in the regular army at the time were real old fuddy-duddies who sat round behind a desk <laughs> pushing pieces of paper from one side to the other. So Yeah, I know that life. <laughs> 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 so um, they wanted young doctors and so um, they, they really ag- agreed to your terms, basically. Right. Mm. And before we leave Vietnam, I just want to ask you, because I've looked after heaps of Vietnam vets and it was always described... Well, obviously I saw the ones who had PTSD, so I yes. saw a selected group. But, you know, the thing that amazed everyone about Vietnam, as compared to some of the other wars, was just 
being frightened all the time. People described they never knew whether they were going to get shot at and the comfort of their tent, shopping, you know, because it was essentially guerrilla warfare a lot of the time as well as some traditional warfare. Did you have that, as a doctor, did you get exposed to the, the sort of the horrors of war? Um, I was I was really lucky. I was assigned to be the regimental medical officer for an artillery um, unit, and uh, the, as you know, the artillery supports the infantry and fires their guns, but back from, from behind the lines. Yes, and yep. so we were, when when you fire your guns when you're out on operation, um, you're in a fire support base and you're supported by the infantry around you, and so. You know, I, I was pretty sheltered from anything really horrible. But I tell you one thing that happened once. We were we used to do medical civil aid work for winning hearts and minds yep. of the Vietnamese. The and public. so on one particular afternoon, me and my medic and uh, a couple of soldiers to protect us went into a little village and we we're halfway through, you know, treating some of the patient, the local people and we heard shots in the distance and the local people all disappeared. I mean, it was really uncanny. And to be left there with just five other soldiers and me in the middle of this deserted village was really scary. Mm. Um, so you're quite right. There was an air of menace that, you know, nobody knew who was friend or foe. Everyone mm -hmm. looked the same. Um, so whatever you were doing, you driving from Nui Dat to Vung Tau where the hospital was or something, you could have been shot at or run over a mine at any time, really. So, so there was a twelve months of being under threat. Mm, it's frightening. Um, just one final thing on the on the Vietnam story. The, of all the many many horrors, obviously that war entails, one of the stories that's coming out a lot um, as a consequence of Vietnam were the pre was the prevalence of addiction forming habits, um, especially drugs, heroin, um, the whole range, the whole thing. Were you seeing that on the ground at the time with with the soldiers, or was that something that's really just only come to the surface subsequently? We we didn't see it. I, I think it was the Australian Army. I think was pretty pretty um, spared that. Um, I think the discipline was. Probably better than than the U.S. Army, right. um, but, but addiction to alcohol was definitely um, a problem. Yeah. And um, you know there was a there was a lot of alcohol drunk in Vietnam. Mm. You could just imagine. I mean, any you know, wars are often associated with high rates of addiction. In fact, I never know if this is quite true, but I was once told heroin. The word heroin came from hero, as in the drug used to treat the heroes of war to get them off morphine really? originally. And that's where the name came from. I've never double-checked it. Someone okay. Google and put it on our Facebook page. <laughs> hey, um, so let's move out of Vietnam. But before we go into HIV, I want to do that sort of circle of... So at that stage, you still hadn't come out as a gay man? No, even even in Vietnam. Right. Mm. And so what So what happened after Vietnam, after you're six months back and then you quit? Well, I am... Um I I got interested in sexually transmitted infections in the army because yeah, you would have seen heaps. I saw heaps, mm. yeah. you know, really and truly I did, and and I I found it fascinating. You know, here's a good little Baptist boy from a religious background. I'd never, I honestly, really had really not ever thought about it, and then yep. then suddenly it hit me in, in the army, and I thought this is a fascinating a fascinating phenomenon. Yep. Um, but it would have been inappropriate for me to to actually uh, specialise in that when I got back from Vietnam. So I was I liked surgery, so I thought I'll go to England and I'll learn how to be a surgeon, yep. which I did. And, right. I, and it, as soon as I arrived in London, in, here was I in a strange city studying for the 
basic medical sciences to become a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the exam was divided into a first part and a second part. The first part was basic medical sciences. It was so dreary studying mm-hmm. the basic medical sciences oh. in a foreign city and all my homosexual desires really surfaced and I had to and I was then 26 I had to face up to the fact that I was a gay man and I I had to do something about it sublimation was not the answer yeah. I had to do something about it and I for the first time went and talked to someone who had I'd known as a, he was the psychiatric registrar at Concord Hospital where I was a intern and I met him in the street in London and I thought, this is a guy I can talk to. Mm. And I, I did. I went and talked to him and it was so hard spilling the beans. I mm. tell you, it was really difficult. Do you still remember that conversation? Oh, so absolutely. Clearly. And it's yeah. partly recorded in the book. Yeah, mm. that's amazing, isn't it? Yep. Uh, you know what, though? I used to see so many people back in the day too who did, you know, that moving to a different city was often part of coming out. It was, I don't know, you the know, benefit what it was. of anonymity or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was that too, and 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 also there are lots of gorgeous guys in London. <laughs> 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 what do you call that? Icing, icing on the cake. <laughs> um, and so, build the bridge to that to ending up in. Um, being an HIV, a uh, sexually transmitted diseases doctor. Okay, very, very quickly. I soon, I, I, I eventually got the FRCS. Yep. And I actually worked, you won't believe this, in orthopaedics for oh, wow. six months oh, in right. a teaching hospital in London. And, and, and I had been on holidays back in Australia um, just before I started that, that stint. And on holidays in Australia, I met my future husband. On Manly Wharf. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like oh. it's out of a film or something. How romantic. Yeah. Yeah. Someone's got to make a movie of this book. Yeah. We'll tell you more about well, the book before we finish the interview, people. Don't worry, we'll get back to it and we'll put a link up. So uh, then what happened? Then what happened was um, my mother found out about it. <gasps> found out about you being gay? Yes, yep. yes. I didn't aim to tell them, but I got a bit carried away meeting this wonderful man on Manly Wharf and it was in the last week of my holiday at home and he came from Melbourne. He was only up in Sydney. All the best ones do for the from week. Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and, and I guess I was, you know, I was in that state of falling, falling in love. Yeah. And um, my mum twigged that something was a little amiss. They always know, don't they? <laughs> they do. <laughs> and she actually told me she thought I was gay over the ironing board as she ironed my shirts to return to London. So she started the conversation. She started the con- She said, David, I think we need to have a chat. How about that? Wow. Mm. How did it go? Terrible. Mm, okay. I was <laughs> hopeful for a second. She did, eh? And your dad, oh, sorry, you, uh, I wanted your, your dad as well, I was wondering. No, 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 she said, don't tell your father it'll <clears> kill him. Right. <laughs> And and I didn't, and I left, which was I, which I regret. But um, and so I left and went back to London. And after about three weeks, I thought I've got to stop this. I'll write, I'll write to Dad and tell him. Right. Which yeah. is a pretty hard hard thing to do to him, I think. And so, did you have a long distance relationship then? For at that time, we had a long distance relationship from January till August when he came to live with me. So right, and it was all done by. Phones and you used to send tapes in those oh little tapes God. in those yeah, days. Yeah, we should probably explain for listeners. There used to be things called letters <laughs> where you'd use a pen on a bit of paper. It was quite amazing. Yes, yes, These yes. days, what? it's a text. Yeah, I know. You would know. I'll show you pictures. I'll show you pictures, okay, Dr. Okay. Trainer. I'll Google it. Um, and so uh, then, so then, what happened to get back to get into sexually trained to get into HIV? He came to live with me in August. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I was doing this busy, you know, orthopaedic rotation, and um, as a junior registrar. And um, 
I found it, uh, you know, trying to learn to live with someone who you don't, you conducted a long geographical uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 relationship. We don't ever spend a week together. <laughs> no, we never. What, never. do you cook and leave dishes in the sink? <laughs> so I thought I'm chucking surgery, yep. which I did. Yep. And I thought, well, now mum and dad know everything. Why can't I do what I wanted to do and, 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 and specialise in STDs? And I temporarily worked in general practice but working part-time also in a STD clinic in, in London, in a London teaching hospital. And when I came back to Australia at the end of 79, I, um, I decided I'd do it full-time. So let's, let's leave some stuff for the book, which is called Tell Me I'm Here for People to Read, and let's skip to your, the first time you came across HIV. Okay. Well, that, that was in... I heard about... Well, the first time, I'll tell you... Yep. Um, the first time I even heard about it was from a patient. And, and doctors always learn things from patients, don't they? If we keep our ears open, yeah, yeah, this which little we smart, sometimes don't. This little smart-ass from gay boy came in and wanted to... Uh, he said, I want a check-up, doc, for the whole lot. And I said, oh, OK, we can do that. And he said, and, and including the gay cancer and the gay pneumonia. And I said, pardon? Geez, I'd forgotten what it was wow. called that. And he yeah. said, um, I've, just, I've just been on holidays in New York City. And he said, I fucked around a lot. And he said, um, I'd like to be checked up because they're all shit scared over there. And I said, well, I, I'm terribly sorry. I've not even heard about it. Wow. What year was this, do you remember? This was um, about 1982. No, it was 1981. Okay. It was 1981 because, you know, amazingly, the very next day, I think it was, I got... Someone from up in the health department had photocopied the MMWR, which was a report from, you know, weekly report from CDC in Atlanta, Georgia, yep. describing the first cases. And that was in June 1981. Wow. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And your first patient? First patient was that I personally saw was in 1985 who was a gay boy who was a good friend of mine mm. um, who turned up really anxious and nervous the, the, on a Monday morning, I think it was, demanding to see me. He'd never been to the clinic before. We'd, we'd been friends. He just turned up and said he wanted to see me. And uh, he, I got to see him and he dropped his pants and said, what are these blue things, spots, purpley spots on my thigh? And I'd never seen them before, apart from in pictures, in medical journals, but I knew straight away that it was Kaposi sarcoma, which is a AIDS-defining condition at the time. Do you remember the first... I mean, there's so much to go through, but do you remember the whirlwind of the first couple of years of getting your head around the illness and...? Well, it was so difficult because we knew so little. I mean, it really was, um, you know, a, a huge learning curve. And, and um, it wasn't just me that knew so little, although, you know, I was a pretty average doctor, I think. And <laughs> I <was> a... <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> you were director of the community. Yeah. <laughs> Those directors, they're all average. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I soon found that the, the doctors at Fairfield were bemused by it all. Old Ron Lucas, who was the head of medicine there, He'd gone off and done a sabbatical in um, CDC at Atlanta, Georgia, and um, he came back with a bit more information, but we, we were wor working in the dark, absolutely mm. working in the dark. So it wasn't only 
the patients who were terrified, we were terrified too. Mm. And how many years did it take till it sort of had become, you know, a significant part of your daily workload? Oh, um, it, pretty quickly after 1985 right. because... Um, the number of cases then started to increase. And of course, we were in contact with my colleagues in Sydney and Sydney was just a little bit ahead of Melbourne, I, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they were seeing a, a heavier caseload yeah. and then then Melbourne was rapidly catching up. Okay, this is a hard question, but, I, I know, but the question is, being a gay man in the gay culture, a lot of your patients you would have known, you were both, um, you were both at risk, you were both a part of a culture, and you were a doctor trying to treat it in, in, I would imagine, a relatively dispassionate way. How did you bring those worlds together? Well, you couldn't be dispassionate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's the key thing. Uh, and I think my gay colleagues all felt the same thing. Um, we To try and distance yourself from the patient was, was really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you had to to a certain extent, but... But you couldn't not be affected. And, and you're quite right. And I remember when the HIV antibody test first became available, it took about five months before Michael and I, Michael, my husband, and I decided that we would have an antibody test ourselves. Mm. So all during that time, I was thinking it could be me that finds KS spots on my legs tomorrow morning in the shower, you know? just must have been an emotional whirlwind, you know, just... Uh, it, was, it was kind of, you know, terrifying. It was, what have the fates got in store for me, you know? Speaking of fate, it's really so remarkable hearing about your life as a, a gay man who was sort of suppressing that part of your identity, drawn to sexual health for some reason mm-hmm. before HIV yes. really became obvious and then b- coming out as a gay man at around the same time as HIV mm-hmm. became a problem. Do you ever reflect on... Th- it seems kind of uncanny that, <laughs> that, that it's, it's a really... The coincidence there is quite remarkable. I know, I know, and, and, and I, I have to say that I felt that. I felt maybe I'm here for a purpose. Maybe all that I went through, um, you know, coming to terms with my sexuality and uh, all that sort of stuff and specialising in sexual health, maybe, it, you know, there's some sort of purpose in it, you know. And I, I, I don't want to sound arrogant about that, but, but it did seem so uncanny. You're right. Did mm. you remain religious? Did you, did you still...? No. No, I, I I can't say I have. Um, um, the, the trouble with You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, I really do. And um, my brother and sister are still strongly committed Christians. In fact, my brother's a, uh, an Anglican priest. Um, but for me, uh, having had that that sort of terrible demarcation between religion and sexuality Mm. Um, and, you know, having to come to terms with it and deciding if you're going to live as a whole human being, um, you've got to embrace your sexuality, haven't you, Mm. I think. And and therefore, because evangelical Christianity is black and white, I found I had to make a real dividing line between the two. Because it's interesting, 
it, you know, I'm trying to remember back some of the political battles around HIV, but I know we had lots at the time around things <laughs> like access to condoms, um, needles, uh, you know, in, simple things like should we be giving con- condoms to prisoners? Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. church groups would fight quite hard about, you know, because condoms were seen as promoting yes. um, promiscuity, essentially, yes, yes. and despite the fact that all the evidence of them preventing sexually transmitted disease. So you must have seen people who were, you know, people you grew up with who were on the other side of the political line in terms of the fight about trying to um, do population-wide safety measures around preventing HIV. Yes, 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 yes. Well, including my dad particularly who, you know, I remember having, you know, discussions with him about, you know, the fact that I was promoting condom use and so on when his, his solution to the problem was telling homosexuals not to do it. The next thing I wanted to ask you about HIV AIDS was how did the whole landscape change and when was it, 1998, when the triple therapy came in? No, about 1996. Oh, 96. And I was in Cairns at the time. I'd I'd left Melbourne by then and I was Director of Sexual Health in Cairns. And um, the change was just dramatic and amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, admittedly, there were big problems with the combination therapy, the three drug therapies that we started to use effectively for HIV. Um, there were side effects. There were things you couldn't take with them. There were r- very difficult yeah. dosage schedules, people having to wake up in the middle of the night, all that sort of nonsense. Uh, so it was really difficult. But people suddenly started putting on weight. They stopped getting having the, the terrible symptoms that they'd been having. People who were on the very edge of dying mm. were brought back from the grave. Um, and their lives were dramatically changed Um, and and it was just amazing as a doctor to see it from going from not being able to offer anyone any hope really at all to suddenly being able to offer people real hope if they took the tablets regularly and as ordered and and look it was it was like a breath of fresh air. And it's like it's about 15 years from, or oh, maybe a bit longer, from the start of yeah. going through that transition, which is a, a blip in history, obviously. It was an incredible yeah. period to be practising. Yeah, it was, it was. So yeah. what inspired you to write the book, which I have in front of me, Tell Me I'm Okay, A Doctor's Story? Well, I, I was conscious that people had were starting to forget now what it was like for patients who faced that period of time when there was no effective treatment. And to try and tell the stories of the patients that I most remembered um, who had gone through that, and all of them apart from one success story who lived long enough to benefit from the new treatment and who survived, all of the patients I tell the story about died. And, And I tell the story of how they came to die, of the sort of hardships and struggles they faced. Um, and I wanted to, you know, pay due tribute to them wow. um, and, mm. and to honour them. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a great achievement. It's available for Monash University Publishing, everyone. Um, it's very easy to find online. Tell me I'm OK. Um, we've put a link up on our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on Triple R. Um, David, thanks so much for coming in and talking about it. Are, mm. you, are you happy to stick around for the last 10 minutes whilst we talk about a few other things? Sure thing. Three, triple, R. 
And we're back. It's Radiotherapy on 3RRR. Um, we've, had, we've been chatting to Dr David Bradford. I'm Dr Doolittle and we've got panel beta and um, good old uh, trainer wheels. Now, trainer wheels has been scouring the medical literature. What have you got for us? Hardly. I saw on <laughs> Facebook a, <laughs> an article that I thought looked interesting and then I watched a documentary on SBS. Um, so there was a documentary on SBS this week called The Truth About Slim People. And I thought, oh, that's appealing. Um, and the premise was basically that there are some people that seem to eat whatever they want and not do all that much exercise yep. and remain slim. And the point of the documentary was to work out how they do it what's different about them? Is it just that they have a fast metabolism, in mm -hmm. inverted commas, or is there something else going on? The biome. Yes, well, anyway, so that was addressed briefly. I haven't watched it, so I'm just totally blind. Sure, sure, that's okay. Throw out some ideas, that's fine. So what the show did was they found two people who said they didn't know why they were slim. They were both very slim, very healthy-looking people, seemed to eat whatever they wanted, never dieted, didn't exercise particularly regularly. How do they do it? And what the doco did was they had hidden cameras around their houses and workplaces and monitored all of their meals over five days and all of their physical activity. And then they had nutritionists and sports physiologists assess their eating and activity habits and try and work out what was going on. So they sort of measured their calories in and out each day and they sort of tried to work out whether they did have this fast metabolism, in inverted commas, which apparently they didn't. They worked that out somehow, that they had average metabolism. And they identified seven behaviours that these people engaged in that they think helped contribute to the fact that they were able to maintain these slim bodies despite not really trying very hard. Which I'll start practising as soon as the show's over today. Yep, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, the documentary didn't sort of give it as advice. It didn't sort of say, with these seven simple tricks, you right. can, you know... <laughs> anyway, so the seven things they found was that they, these people regulated their calorie intake subconsciously. And what I mean by that is, you know, they might go out with mates and have a couple of beers and uh, Maccas one night and then the next day eat significantly less. So skip breakfast, yeah. have a really light lunch, a light afternoon tea and a normal dinner. This has always been my theory, I've got to say. I've got a number of friends who fall into this category and they'll go, oh, I can eat whatever I like. I'm going to have second helpings. And it always strikes me, they just seem to know a little bit too much about food and it's it's more that, you know, I don't There's believe a bit more going I don't on buy it. They're going home and they're not eating for the rest of the day. I anyway, agree, I agree. On. Yeah, very much so. So overall, so they might have so certain one, days where they're eating heaps it, more yeah. calories than they should be, but then over the course of a week, it sort of ends up being balanced because they eat a lot less yep. on other days. So that was one thing, which surely is the main <laughs> contributing yeah. factor. And we're kind when we say it's subconscious. I think so as well. Yeah. I think so as well. Yeah, they, yeah. yeah they're lying dogs. The participants, <laughs> yeah, they claimed Sorry, that it people. was subconscious. But anyway. Um, so other things that these people did was that they slept six to eight hours a night oh. and they interviewed... Um, Don't we all? ...some professor, I can't remember who, who said that it's same. to do with leptin and ghrelin and when you're sleeping, the hunger and satiety hormones are related to sleep regulation and blah, blah, blah. And if you don't have enough sleep, then your hormones are not in the correct balance and you can overeat. I see. So lack of sleep, overeat. These people so sleep these people a good night's sleep. good sleep. Makes them not so hungry. Yes. Lucky. They drank little alcohol. Obviously, alcohol is very caloric. Yep. They drank occasionally, but not certainly not regularly. Okay, not I'm going night. on record now. I'm not doing that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not cutting back. No dry alcohol. July for you, no. do you? <laughs> Another one, which I thought was quite interesting, they ate all their meals sitting down. And they interviewed a woman who I can't remember what her profession was, if she was a doctor or a dietitian or what her background was, but she conducted a study where she had people eat the same meal 
half of them eat it sitting down and half of them eat it standing up. And she found that those who ate it standing up ate twice as much following that meal. Because they were treating it like snacks exactly. as opposed to meals. Yeah. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. There's something. There seems to be something to do with the psychology of sitting down to eat a meal that you feel like it's a substantial meal rather than just a quick snack on the go. I agree with that one entirely. I mm. see it all the time. I see people eating, walking through the city. And you and sort of don't realise you've eaten. have a weight problem. And the worst one you see is drive. people driving eating. Um, you know, I think, you know, because... Of, but mind you, that's just a marker that you're eating all day instead of eating only... I suppose, you know. at mealtimes, yeah, absolutely. And something else that this woman mentioned was that apparently even the language we use around these foods, if you call the same meal a meal versus a snack, you'll eat more uh, following a snack than you... You'll, you'll feel more full, I suppose, is the what you could take from that. So that was interesting too. Um, another one was that they didn't snack very much. Um, they they sort of stuck to three main meals mm. a day and that was about it. Yeah. Um, and although they claimed they didn't exercise very much, they actually were quite active. So one, so there were the two participants, the man walked to and from work every day, which was a two-mile walk or something, and he did a um, some sort of self-defence class once a week, which was very high intensity. And the woman was just very active all the time, fidgeting all the time. Mm. She took dance classes with toddlers, which, as you can imagine, is extremely energy-intensive. Um so they, they were probably more active than they realised, even though they weren't going to the gym and those sorts of things. And you're up to number seven. Do you want a drum roll or do you just want to go straight into it? No, that's it. That was it. That's oh, seven. I must have miscounted. <laughs> um, wait a sec, let me figure. Is, is there one where they're not very good at maths and that's what makes them? <laughs> well, they're good at maths yep. so they can count calories. That might be my problem. The, um, so I, I, I watched it on Wednesday night and I spent most of it being quite frustrated. The production at, was very irritating. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend watching it necessarily. No, as a, as a, as a, a dog, but um, <laughs> but I thought the punchline was at the very end, and they only gave it the briefest of attention, and it was that they were happy. Ah, mm. so they 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 but were. It is only two subjects. Really. They um they were in a, a really healthy family life, or as far as the doco presented, you know, they were in a really good relationships, good family life. They weren't um, overly stressed, so that accounts for the sleeping. Um, they didn't have addictions, so that accounts for the drinking. Um, they weren't snacking, so they didn't have any kind of anxiety that we often associate. I think with it's food. also worth mentioning that they had enough time to prepare almost all of their meals from scratch, yeah. rather than eating takeaway most days, which yeah. I do. Because uh, <laughs> uh, I think that's something that a lot of, is not available to a lot of people. So they, they, were, they were happy. And the other thing that they didn't seem to talk about was they did focus on calories. They didn't talk about nutrition. That's a good point. And yeah. Uh, See, you know um, what, panel beater? That's why you're the philosophical compass <laughs> and international health expert because you look at it, you give it the bird's eye view, you come up with the um, analysis. I love it. Hey, but we do have to wind up. We do have to wind up. Before we wind up, I just want to tell you quickly about a seminar called Life Before Death, How We Live at the End of Our Lives. It's got this famous palliative care physician from the US called BJ Miller. He's got TED Talks and all that sort of stuff. You can look him up. He's just amazing. And Melbourne Uni is bringing him to uh, Melbourne. And in conjunction with Peter Mack and uh, the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, there's uh, a nice two-hour seminar 
on June 27. You can look it up um, at events.unimelbourne.edu.au, although we've got a link on uh, Radiotherapy's page as well. There's two of the leading professors of palliative care from Melbourne. Um, there's Maxine Moran from the board of Peter Mack. There's Julian Gardner, who's, I think, the chair of the Assisted Dying um, legislation. Anyway, have a look and come along if you're interested. Um, thank you so much to David Bradford for coming in and talking about his book, um, Tell Me I'm OK. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.